remain standing. And if you're a visitor, we ask you to grab a bulletin and we ask you to read out loud as we quote out loud Isaiah 53, 1 through 10. Now, for the last two weeks, I've been encouraging you that if you want Bible memorizing to be thousand times easier for the rest of your life, you hook a habit with a habit. Say that. Just five minutes a day. It might be right before you go to sleep. It might be the first part of your prayer time, first part of your exercise time. You know, my exercising, I swim, I do rowing. When I swim, I do one word per stroke, one word per row. It's amazing what it does when you just lose yourself in the Word of God and a half hour has gone by. Your commute time or your shower, bathroom, just don't do it when you're shaving. It could be dangerous. How many of you have begun to experiment with just five minutes a day quoting the word out loud in connection with a habit? Hold your hands up. I am so proud of you guys. For the rest of you, I want to encourage you to try this. It will change your life for the rest of your life. Join with me today. We're going to do Isaiah 53, 1 through 10. And I want you to really punch the word we in verse 3. So join with me. Ready? Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. We claim the will of the Lord will prosper in our hands because our hands belong to Jesus. Our lives belong to him. Let everything in our lives glorify our king. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Amen. Give somebody a high five as you're being seated. Tell them they're looking better than they've ever looked in their entire life. If you're married, kiss them. All right. While you're being seated, go ahead and grab your sermon handouts. We are studying word by word through Isaiah 53, and we have come to a very intense two verses. The verses that describe the demonic oppression that was upon our Lord Jesus on the cross. Now, 
I said this last week and I want to say it again. In fact, if you didn't get to hear last week's sermon, I encourage you to get on the internet. We have MP3 download, audio or video. But demons is just simply a weird subject. And when you deal with weird, abstract subjects, it is so important to be extra careful to lay out your Bible verses one, two, three at a time, to have things that are not just opinions and weird emotional reactions, but very safe, very proven, logical Bible stances. So last week we covered a lot and and I got so many email responses. I want to take a few minutes and amplify a couple things that we said last week. We began by studying this, the question, do Christians battle against demons? And we read nine different passages that show forcefully that it is a normal thing for Christians to battle demons. I have said and said to you, every Christian will have thousands in, of encounters with demons in your life. The only real question is, are you mature enough to learn to recognize the four different sources of voices in your head? Because demons can throw a thought or a sense of pressure, as we studied last week, the word oppressed, what it means. It can be the Spirit of God, it can be your flesh, or it can be your own human reasonings. In that, one of the things I said last week is, demon-possessed is not really what the original word is. And people get kind of caught up in, well, can a Christian be possessed by a demon? I'm going to amplify on that a little bit. First of all, the word demon-possessed is not what the word is in the Greek. The word is, they simply took the word demon and made it into a verb. It's demonized. So 13 times in the Gospels when you see demon-possessed, it's really just the verb demon. They have demons. It's really all it is. It's not cut and dried because demons are levels of influence. Some people simply have a harassment from a demonic spirit every now and then. Other people have major influence in their life. But the Bible also talks about being demon-oppressed, which we studied last week. In all this, the Christian wants to know, where are they, what do they do, and are they inside me? Well, here's what the Word of God says. I'm going to watch it very, very carefully. When an evil spirit, Matthew 12 says, comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, now who's it? The demon. What do those three words tell you about demons? Intelligent. They have strategies. They're self-aware. They have yearnings. These are living entities. Then it, the demon says, I will return to the house I left. And the house in scripture generally represents the human soul. Especially does in this passage. When it arrives, it finds the house. This is the key word. What is that? Swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. Notice that there's different levels of power. There's different levels of strength amongst demons. And they go in and live there and the final condition of that man is worse than the first. A couple of years ago, I did a teaching on spirit, soul, and body. It has one of the most basic fundamental things for, for every Christian to understand. In fact, we give this DVD away. We have hundreds of them out in our tape ministry. You can pick one up. And, and it's a very important foundation to understand that the Bible is very clear. And the beautiful thing about this is every fundamental Bible teacher agrees on what spirit, soul, and body is. It's one of the few things that all Christians agree on. When you are not born again, 
The part of you that was created in the image of God, which is your spirit being. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, John 4 says. That part of you is dead. It died. It died with Adam in the Garden of Eden. So all you have left is a body and a soul. Now, biblically, your soul has two parts. The Bible phrase for the cognitive reasoning frontal lobal awareness process is called the mind. In, in psychology, it's called the conscience. Biblically, there's a subterranean area. We call it about the basement last week where your motives, your attitudes, what Romans 12 says, your mindsets, the lies that you've believed, the, the, the built-up emotional reactions and why you react is called the heart. In psychology, it's called the what? The subconscious. So the soul, which a Christian and a non-Christian have, is that house where demons want to come into. For the non-Christian, that's all they've got. And so they are, yes, more susceptible to this power overwhelming or don't go too extreme on this, but to this concept of controlling. Remember, the main thing is levels of influence. But for us, when we are born again, I love that. The Bible says, Romans 8.10, that our spirit is alive because of righteousness. It says in 1 Corinthians 6.17, he who has joined himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So you are born again. You are restored to who you were and the foundation of your identity is restored. You are an extension of the living God. Still, even for you, once you are born again, your spirit is untouchable. The Bible says it's one with the Lord. And, and that's why you can be depressed, discouraged, screwed up, deceived, and still going to heaven because although your mind or your subconscious is messed up, you are born again in your spirit being. Isn't God good to us? But the battle is in the heart. And the question is, is the heart or the soul, is it occupied? Does every Christian have the spirit? Yes, Absolutely. Romans 8, 10 says that if Christ, if Romans 8, 9 and 10 says that if you don't have the Spirit, you're not saved. Is every Christian filled with the Spirit? Absolutely not. You have to be not filled, but Ephesians 5 says you have to be continually refilled. The Word and the Spirit have to continually move from your spirit into your soul because we leak. Turn to the person next to you and say, you leak and I leak. And so you're looking here at a picture of a house that's occupied. But remember that I said that Satan's power is in the lie. Would you say that? And when you embrace a lie, when that lie gets a strong hold on you, whether it's a lie I couldn't survive if, or I can't stand it when, or I'm so bored, those lies, if they're embraced deeply, and if they get a strong hold on you, they get buried in your heart, a little bit in your conscience, and that gives the legal freedom for demons. And so the issue is not am I controlled by a demon or how much am I controlled by a demon because the Bible is very clear that every Christian will battle demons. So before you get distracted with a question that nobody has the full answer to, the right question is how do I defeat demons? Not what level or that kind of stuff. Let's just focus on what the Bible says on how we're going to win the battle. Somebody say amen. amen. Now, also last week, 
If you look at the words power encounter, I said that for Christians battling demons, it is not a power encounter. It's a different kind of encounter. What's the other kind of encounter? A truth encounter. And, I, and last week, if you didn't get to hear the sermon, I gave examples of lies. And, and, and I want to ask you this again. When someone says, I couldn't survive if my wife ever found out this about me, or I couldn't survive if I lost my job, or I couldn't survive if I lost my house, or I couldn't survive if I lost my kids. Is that partial lie or total lie? Total lie. There is nothing of truth in that. And that is like opening a window and inviting a spirit of fear into your house. And each lie, I can't stand it when. Partial lie or total lie? Total lie. When Jesus defined Satan's greatest weapon as the essence of Satan's identity, he said, because Satan's power is in the lie, he said, you belong to your father the devil and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he, he speaks his, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So, Always remember that the power of Satan, I told you last week that Jude says that demons are chained to darkness. That the power is in the lie. The issue is not, you know what the difference is between a child and an adult biblically? According to 1 Corinthians 13, a child is defined by someone who believes every thought in their head. That's what a child is. I don't think they should. Since I think they shouldn't, that's the end of it. That wasn't right. I can't stand it when. If you believe every thought in your head, whether you're 8 or 80, you are by biblical definition a child. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. How many of you have been through an inner healing course? Hold your hand up high. I am so proud. Hold it up high because what you're seeing is you're seeing people who will never backslide. Now, put your hands back down. How many of you can look at the inner healing course and realize that if you were to summarize what you learned in all those courses is you learned, Romans 8, 12, 3, you learned to take the thoughts that are in your head and look at them in a detached way. And rather than just believing every thought, you learn to separate and look at them. How many can say that you learned that in the inner healing course? That's probably the deepest, simple teaching. Once you do that, you are never again a full sucker. But when you believe every thought in your head, you are like a wet dish rag that Satan just slings your emotions any direction he wants. Now, that's, that's summation for what we covered last week. We're about to cover Satan's greatest lie. This lie outweighs all his other lies combined. We will take two sermons, even though you, I won't even get half of it done today. This lie, the instant you embrace this lie, you will stop praying on a dime. The instant you embrace this lie, almost no one even opens the Bible three months later. You stop going to church, your heart for the lost instantly is gone. Every other lie that you embrace is like opening a window in the house of your soul. This lie is like Satan driving an 18-wheeler truck through the side of your house. This is the lie that when you embrace this, God and Satan are most in agreement that Satan now has legal authority over your soul. 
This is the most heinous of all lies. And it's the one that really upsets God. They're not all equal lies. They're not all equal demons. As you look at this picture, when you embrace this lie, you literally throw yourself into the mouth of Satan. It's three words, I've been. Anyone know what the third word is when you guess? Wronged. I've been wronged. Now I want you to look me in the eye. I beg you to look me in the eye and hear this. Because the battle for your soul is right now what I'm going to say. I've been wronged is not partial lie. Not half lie. It is 100% total lie and there is zero truth in it. I'm not going to just ask you to believe me. I'm going to walk you through the scriptures and the points one, two, three, four. If you are hungry for victory, if you want the joy and the power and the life of Jesus, then everything. The Bible doesn't say that there are many weapons of Satan. It says there is one main weapon of Satan and this is it. Before we begin to study the scriptures, let me ask you a question. Do you think that when Satan was thrown out of heaven... He turned to his demons and said, well, we really deserve that because we rebelled against the holy God. Do you think he said that? How many think that he to this day believes he was wronged in being thrown out of heaven? So when you embrace the total, complete lie, I was wronged, beware of your father who has no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language for he's a liar and the father of lies. Beware of who you follow when you embrace that total lie. Probably in the next 10 years, there will not be one point where even right now while I'm talking, there's going to be a battle to zone out. There's going to be a battle to be distracted. There's going to be a shutting down in your soul. Of, I don't want to hear this. Matthew 18, 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to. What's those next two words? I want to ask everybody to say those words again. Say it again. I've been wronged is a demand for justice. Please notice that there will come a time that justice will be meted out. But because justice is justice, every sin must be punished to the full at the time of justice. Beware of demanding justice. And please notice there will time come a time when the king will, what's those two words again? With his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents. Now the New English version of the Bible says that this is 50 million pieces of silver. 50 million pieces of silver he owed the king. A man who owed him 50 million pieces of silver was brought to him. And since he, the man, was not what? Now, please notice that he was not able to pay because later on he gets turned over to who? The torturers until he pays in full. But we already know he's not able to pay. Now, please notice that there were two different punishments for the first man. The first time there was no mention of torturers. It just says the master ordered that he and his wife and his children all that be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred pieces of silver. 
A denarii was one day's wage, a piece of silver. So he owes 50 million pieces of silver to the king. That debt gets canceled. Someone owes him a hundred pieces of silver. He grabbed the man and began to what? Look me in the eye and hear this. If it, in about 20 minutes, we're going to close this service. And I'm going to ask you to invite the Holy Spirit to go down into the basement of your heart. And if there is any name on this earth that the mention of that name evokes a negative emotional reaction, then you have not completed the process of forgiveness. Beware of pithy statements that are not fully biblical. The Bible says in Ephesians 1.7 that forgiveness and redemption are the same thing. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So forgiveness is a process where there's four steps. First, you cancel any debt of anything they may have done to you. And that's the one you do by faith. If you stop there, you have disobeyed three major commands. Second, you ask God to remove the plank out of your eye, which means show me my wrongs through their emotions. Now let me ask you something. How long does it take us to see their wrongs through our eyes? How long? A nanosecond. How long does it take us to see our wrongs through their emotions? 10, 20 years. I got saved at 19. Within three years, my five siblings and my parents all got saved. All fitners, my parents and all five of my siblings were all very loud people. All of us. There's not a quiet one in the bunch. It's scary. For 20 years after I got saved, I was sort of the spiritual family patriarch. And my family had such incredible extended strife. There was always someone who was blacklisted. And there was always a major strife. And I don't think I went two months without one, two, or three times where I was called in and it was six and eight hour meetings and screaming and yelling. And this was a way of life for me for 20 years. After 20 years, I cut them all off. I cut them all off. I said to all the fitners, go away. Don't ever talk to me again. I never want to see you again. I'll meet you at the judgment seat of Christ. I'm done with all of you. There had been violations of certain things that were so heinous to me and it had been 20 years of strife. When I cut off my entire extended family, not just never intending to see them again, thrilled to never see them again. <laughs> In the humility of my heart, I acknowledged that probably 5% of the problem was me. I couldn't see it, but I'm sure it was there somewhere. Over the next six years, we had no contact. By the miracle grace of God, the mercy of God, all of us went through inner healing at different churches. I went through two professional counselors. I wrote out my life story one word at a time. Processed all these things. Six years later, God began to bring us all back together. Which, by the way, today we are an incredibly happy, loving. We have fun together. We laugh together. We're very comfortable together. But God began to bring us back together. By the time God healed me, I began to see that I probably bore as much as half the problem. Now, after God's restored us five years later, as I've continued to seek God, I realize now that all those years I was helping, I was codependent, 
I had to fix everything. I charged in, didn't wait till people asked for my help, used my influence, tried to make everybody do right. And God showed me that I was not water on the fire, I was gas. And now, 30 years after all the strife began, this is the, you want the truth before God? And this is the best as I got thus far. If I had been healthy, 90% of that tension would never have even happened. You know what it is to realize that all those that you've forgiven, it's you actually the one that wronged them? You know, that's just the second command. The third command of forgiveness is this. To ask God to teach you things that so outweigh the pain that you are, what's the one thing Satan is most scared of? Thankfulness. That you are thankful for what happened. And then the fourth command is maybe his most fierce. Until all this process is completed, you are commanded every day to pray for God to bless that person. Because the Bible does not say forgive them by faith. It says forgive them from your heart or your emotions. And so if there is one person on this earth that in your mind you are choking them, then this is you in the parable. And until your emotions, until you are thankful for everything that happened to you and your emotions feel nothing but love and warmth for them, forgiveness is not complete. He grabbed his fellow servant and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But... He refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told the master everything that happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be what? Somebody say it. Tortured. To be tortured. Who are the torturers? The demons are. Listen to me. I beg of you to hear me. Fester the lie. Feed the lie. And you have a cheering section. And they say, yes, more, you're wrong. Because now I own you. I have a legal right to you. And I'm going to show you the details of the legal right. Tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father. Now, we want to have everything in a box. And I believe in the covenant of salvation and the security of the believer. But it's not a mathematical equation. It's a relationship. You know what the one thing Jesus said most fierce of everything? The most fierce thing he said, you know the thing he repeated more than anything? If you do not forgive your brother, my heavenly father might not forgive all your sins will not, under any situation, forgive your sins. Now, what does that mean? I don't know, and I'm determined to not find out. <laughs> Can somebody say amen? amen? This is how my Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Why is this a lie? Four reasons. Now, this is not on your handout. You might want to jot some of this down. Number one reason why this is a lie, because of Shakespeare. 
Shakespeare had a line, which has become an idiom in our phrase from Hamlet, methinks thou dost protest too much. In, in football, it's this kind of phrase. The best defense is a good... In the Bible, it's this verse, Proverbs 18, 17. The first to present his case seems right until another comes forward and questions him. I tell my leaders all the time, anyone who's ever held any leadership position in the body of Christ, hold your hand up right now. Hold your hand up. Look at me. Everyone's ever been a leader. If you, never, if you want to be a wise leader, the person who most loudly proclaims how much they've been wronged now, in 25 years of pastoring, I've probably seen this over 100,000 times. In every case, the one who's loud about proclaiming how much they've been wrong was actually the one who caused the most damage. Amen. Always. I've never seen an exception. Beware of believing that you've been wronged because your ability to magnify someone else's wrongs and your ability to minimize your own wrongs is so self, what am I going to say? Deceptive. And if you believe it too wholeheartedly, you're probably deeply deceived. That's only one reason. Number two is a comparison count. Watch this question carefully because you may misunderstand it. If you, when someone says, I've been wronged, I've been wronged, I've been wronged. If you really pin them down and say, are you completely innocent? You mean you've done nothing wrong? What would they say? Well, no, I've done a few things wrong. But what they want, I'm a math major. I was a math major in college. What they want is a mathematical comparison contrast count. What they're saying is, the wrongs done to me are just monstrous. And the, the wrongs done by me are... <laughs> Minuscule. You don't know what the Bible says? How many know what the Bible says? Somebody say what the Bible says. What the, Bible says. the Bible says about the wrongs done to us versus the wrongs done by us. If it were not for the blood of Jesus, thank God for the blood of Jesus. But if there were not the blood of Jesus erasing from the record. Oh. And here's what the count would be. The Bible says the count would be the wrongs done to you, a hundred. The wrongs done by you, fifty million. You sure you want to call for judgment? You sure you want to demand everybody must be punished? Understand, every time Jesus said you hate your brother in your heart, that's the sin of murder. Every time you lust after a woman, that's the sin of adultery. And these are sins before God and man. Every time that you were selfish and God wanted you to be kind. Every time you didn't give a word of encouragement. Every time you didn't affirm. Every time you didn't serve. All of those are counted. And so the lie is, I've been wronged so much more than I have wronged. Total lie. Total lie. Third one. This one is the legal settling of the issue. Last week we studied three of the four words of demons on the cross of Christ in Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. He was oppressed and afflicted. And in verse 8, by oppression. Three different words. We looked at them. There's a fourth word I left out. The greatest of all Satan's weapons is the fourth word. Verse 8, Isaiah 53, 8. 
by oppression and something, he was taken away. What's the other one? Judgment. A judgment is a very, very simple concept. A judgment is a conclusion. But I want to give you the best definition of a judgment you'll ever see. Has someone done an action to you that might have been wrong? Yes, absolutely. That's merely a piece of evidence in the process. And in the process, the evidence is brought to the judge. But when all the evidence is in place, then the guy in the robe takes the wooden mallet and he gives the judgment or the conclusion or the summation of it all. It is not unbiblical to say something like, it really feels like this person has wronged me, but, everybody say but. God hasn't yet shown me my wrongs through their eyes. God hasn't yet shown me all the good things he wants to teach me. And I've not yet prayed blessings over them long enough. That's, I'm dealing with an action that may have been wrong against me, but God. Say, but God. A judgment is a, a conclusion against another human being that intentionally leaves out God. You see, there's a difference between processing a possible piece of information. Yes, it's possible that my dad could have been more affectionate, but maybe I haven't seen through and he hasn't got his talk. That's processing a piece of information. But when it is a completed sentence, I was wronged, period. It's a conclusion because a judgment is A conclusion against another human being, say that, that intentionally leaves out God, say that, and you have a cheering section because you have established a legal precedent because in our hearts we say, I don't want God in this picture. I don't want to see my wrongs and I sure don't want to see him through your stinking eyes. And there's nothing I want to learn through this. And the last thing on this earth I'm going to do is pray blessings over you. So God, you stay out of this. This is my conclusion against you and God is not to intervene. I demand justice and I demand that God stay out of it. And demons say, deal. You heard it, God. They demand justice and they demand that you stay out. Rev up the 18-wheeler, boys. I was wronged, period. It's a total lie. Because, don't kid yourself, it wasn't an accident we left out, God. It was intentional. Last one. You know, you don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to know a million scriptures. You don't have to be able to quote a whole chapter. All you got to know is that when you first got saved, you loved people and you loved the Lord and you worshiped and you were hungry for the word and you hurt for the lost and the instant you embraced that lie, you got cold and distant. You don't pray, you don't worship, you don't hurt for the lost. When the Bible talks about Satan's weapons, It only mentions one weapon repeatedly. 
Matthew 6, it says, first line, forgive. Third line, forgive. The standard of forgiveness is as Christ forgave you. When you're quoting Isaiah 53, and you realize that when you're unsaved, that I despised and rejected him. I said that he deserved to be crucified and God is judging him. And while I was cursing him, he was carrying my sins and my sorrows and my sicknesses. That's my standard. In the middle between these two passages on forgiveness and lead us not into temptation. What is the temptation? Watch carefully. The temptation is to draw a conclusion against a fellow human being that intentionally leaves out God. And according to this verse, if you avoid that temptation, you're delivered from the evil. And reverse that. If you give in to that temptation, you are delivered to the evil one. Let me close with 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Which is the passage about Satan's schemes. Paul says, if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. Why does Paul say that? Here's my theory. You get it? Close. Clint Eastwood. Quickest forgiver in the West. Do you know how absolutely heinous it is to delay forgiving? To delay asking God to show you you're wrong. I'll do that next week, next month, next year. He said, you forgive. Nobody's quicker to forgive than me. And then I love this. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive. Why does he say that? Because over half the time, when the process is complete, you're going to realize that you forgave someone and they didn't even need forgiveness because you were the one that wronged them. When you finish the process. And so Paul says, you forgive and half the time there really isn't anything to forgive. But we just start with that forgiving thing. I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. We don't forgive for the people's sake who wronged us. We forgive for our own sake. Know that Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes. Will you stand today, every person? Elders, come to the front, please. And let's do business with God today. Are you ready to do business with God? Are you ready for the king and the sovereign to set you free? Stand up, people, as quickly as you can. Elders, quickly and quietly come to the front. Now look me in the eyes because I'm going to ask you to follow me in a prayer. Please get as still as you can, as quickly as you can, every person. Please be as still as you can, as quickly as you can. Look at me. We're going to invite the king. Romans 8, 27. And he who searches our hearts. If there is any name buried, that the mention of that name brings up a negative emotional reaction in me then I'm still choking my fellow servant. I haven't completed the process. Three commands, not suggestions, commands. Don't leave this place without crying out for mercy. If God shows you a name, play no games. If you will let him, today may be the most important, this may be the most important five minutes of your entire life. So I want to ask you to close your eyes right now, every person. And I want to lead you in a prayer. If you would please say these words. Say, Jesus, 
You are Lord. You are boss. You are king. You are the master who will settle all accounts. And this day, I open my heart wide to you. And I invite your Holy Spirit to search my heart. And if there is any name that brings up a negative emotional reaction in me, I beg you, reveal it to me now while I am tender and while I am humble. Now just wait on the Lord. We're going to do more ministry in a minute. Just wait on the Lord. I will tell you that there's all weekend there's been too many for us to pray at the altar. If God is showing you a name, I want to offer you to do two things. Either come forward and let an elder pray for you right now, just flood the altars, or turn around and get on your knees and put your elbows on the pew and just begin to meet with God right now. God is showing you, do business with God right now. Be serious. Do not let another moment go by. Do not let any enemy distract you. This is your moment to have victory. Come forward, let an elder pray for you or turn around and get on your knees right now and just say, God, I'm here to meet with you. Just take your time. We're not going to be in a hurry.